This is Authors Alcove, where writers learn from writers. Readers get the inside scoop and everyone learns something. An episode comes out every Wednesday where writers share their latest work. Every other Tuesday, where us writers get taught by such experts as editors, book cover artists, and marketing execs, and beyond. So grab a cup of coffee and let's dive into our next book. Welcome to Authors Alcove. This is Agnes Wolf. Today I have award-winning, best-selling American author Richard R. Becker. His debut collection of literacy fiction and psychological thrillers not only remained in top 100 Amazon short stories for three months, but also won the ABR Book Excellence Award. And also the spring, in spring 2022, Book Fest Award and 2023 Book Excellence Award and was the finalist in the IAN Book of the Year Award. He also has recently released his debut novel, Third Wheel, in August of 2023. And I hear it's up for an award as well. Is, was that what I heard? Actually, it, it, it received a finalist award from the Global Book Awards. So, so I was one of the finalists. So yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Great job. Is there anything else that I missed? No, I think that's pretty good. Um, I, I, I can't say Third Wheel's uh, looking to be uh, breaking into that top 100 bestsellers on Amazon within, uh, I'd say, in October. We're, we're on track for that. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm pretty excited. Yeah, I'll probably be purchasing it here too. September so. is such a hard month to... What's that? I'll, pro I'll probably be purchasing it here soon. And so I always put reviews, so you'll Great. definitely get another review. Um, so what was your inspiration? Oh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, so what was your inspiration to become a writer? Oh, to become a writer? You know, it's kind of funny that you <laughs> were starting there. Um, I actually never intended to be a writer uh, initially. So I was going to be an artist. Um, that was going to be my my vehicle of choice. Uh, I was really dissuaded by that by my mother. So by the time I went into uh, looking to be an artist in um, college, it was actually I started to pursue a degree in psychology. Um, so from my, um, so I was studying psychology at Whittier College. Uh, so uh, that went pretty well for a year, but I realized there was only like two things you could do. You could either listen to people's problems all day, or you could teach mice to press a bar for cheese. That's about it. That's psychology, right? And uh, so I'm like, oh, this is going to work. So um, I decided to see what I could do about going into advertising and maybe do some art there and maybe combine like art and psychology and do that. So I had transferred to the University of Nevada, Reno, and they said, you don't want to go through art if you want to go into advertising. What you want to do is go ahead and um, join our journalism program. And they literally taught me to write. So I had done some dabbling before wow. in writing. But yeah, UNR is where I learned to be a, a professional writer. And that's that's where I was a, a writer. Now, in terms of literary fiction, that, that came much that came later. But uh, out of the box, I um, I have a degree in journalism. Uh, with a psychology minor, um, I'm actually only two credits short from being a psychology a dual major, right? But that's that's what I ended up doing. I actually was a psychology major as well. So was my husband. I think that's oh. a good thing to be for a writer, actually. <laughs> so it helps a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what inspired um, the third wheel? So third wheel, I would say that it actually picked me more than I chose it. I was actually working on a second collection of short stories and it was going to be called 50 threads and then I wrote this story called um third wheel so it was just a short story 
which is now the first chapter of the book, Third Wheel. What I had done differently and some of the other stories that were in that project, which ended up being, I did publish it as 10 threads, just not 50 threads. So there are only 10 stories. But uh, what was kind of interesting about that one is I did something different and I gave uh, the character Brady Wilkes uh, my backstory a, a little quite pretty close to me. I gave him my backstory as a child and stuff as his framework. Um, he's different than I am. I mean, it is a fictional story, but at the same time, there, there's a lot of similarities in our experiences. And once I wrote that story, I was like, I know what's next. I, I knew what chapter two was and chapter three and chapter four. So I just had to go for it. And I had to make a decision um, on the fly. It was either I could write 50 threads and put out another collection of short stories, or I could start my debut novel. And I decided to do that. So I'm glad that you did that. That's actually how I kind of feel about my book that I'm currently writing is I knew the end as soon as I knew the beginning. It just came to me. And like I had tried writing so many different times and none of them just flowed like this one that I'm writing right now. You mentioned that Third's Wheel is about belonging, betrayal, and breaking away. What was the catalyst for choosing those particular themes? So really it is, uh, the, I would say the, the biggest plot line is um, the biggest motivation for Brady Wilkes, which is the main character is that he has this overwhelming desire to belong because he wants to belong because he doesn't feel like he belongs anywhere. He doesn't belong. He doesn't feel like he belongs in the household he's in. Uh, he doesn't belong in the friend group he's in because he's the youngest one. When he moved to Las Vegas, he's a transplant from the Midwest. He didn't fit in right away. Uh, initially, he gravitated towards some kids who were like, for lack of a better definition, they'd be called nerds or they have different terms for that today. Uh, than they did in the 80s. And then uh, the nerds kind of get targeted a little bit. So that wasn't a good fit for him. So he ended up joining a little bit tougher crowd, right? So that's where he is on on that. But there's a lot of betrayals that in his life, both at home uh, and within his friend group, uh, just as, as that friend group starts to shift. And that's kind of what the story is about is the friend group is the only place that he finds comfort, but yet the friend group starts to shift when, a, when an extra team kind of comes in. So that's why I kind of picked on, on those particular themes. And then the part of the story is, or part of his transformation and his growth, is he has to make a decision whether or not he's going to stay with this group on the on the direction that it's moving in, which is a very dangerous track, or, or if he wants to do something else with his life. And the big question, of course, which I can't share with you today, is if he does it in time, right? <laughs> so that will keep under the hood. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned that the character shares many of your own experiences. And I know that a lot of people will say yeah. that even fiction is autobiographical. Would you agree with that? And how does this story show that? To a degree. So yeah, Third Wheel for sure. Uh, there's, In fact, uh, it just came out as an audiobook as well uh, just a few days ago. We were able to do that. And when I actually heard the story playing back, I was like, oh, I didn't realize I, I put that in too. Um, so... <laughs> there's quite a bit of that. I do agree with you that um, a lot of writing, a lot of fiction is autobiograph autobiographical because even when I um, did 50 States and I did the short story collection, a lot of the short stories, like there, a lot of times they're little pieces of my life that are kind of interwoven in the stories. And then I take them in directions that weren't actually true or weren't actually accurate. So in the case of Third Wheel, um, I would say his framework and foundation is pretty accurate. Uh, some of the things that he does in the book, um, I'm not going to say that that, that necessarily happened, you know, um, like one of the big things is that the, 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 the one team that joins the group wants them to do a heroin deal with a Mexican drug cartel. Um, so there was You've no never heroin. Done that. It wasn't, <laughs> I, 
I wasn't around it with any heroin deal in the middle of the desert. That was not me. <laughs> well, I've never driven, I've never ridden on a dragon. So, <laughs> and that's what mine is about. <laughs> but internally, um, right. there was, there were some similarities because Brady Wilkes is, uh, you know, he, he comes from a broken, he has a broken childhood, right? So his grandmother raised him like my grandmother raised me for the first 10 years. She was dying of cancer. So they had to figure out what to do with him. Uh, as a as a different kind of role model. So he ended up being reunited with his mother. And then he had all these expectations that this would be this great and wonderful thing. And that's what what he experienced at first on his on his way from the Midwest um, to Las Vegas. But once he's in Las Vegas, things are are much different uh, for him. And he has a very adversarial relationship with his mother because she has a lot of uh, problems with the fact that she didn't she didn't like his biological father. She doesn't want him to become an artist. Uh, she thinks that they, uh, her mom spoiled him and things like that. So it creates a really tenuous uh, situation, which is why he gravitates to this friend group, you know, uh, that he has, which is a really, they're kind of delinquents. So there is a significant yeah. weight on a mother-son relationship in the third world. Why did you choose yeah. to have that play a pivotal role in the book? The book is really about entertainment, but there is some, you know, some people might be enlightened by it or they might feel a little bit connected to the story in that, um, I think when kids don't have a strong family structure at home, that's when they're going to gravitate to these other places. In fact, what's kind of interesting about Third Wheel from what beta readers told me and, and even some of the readers reading it now is they don't even like Brady Wilkes on the front end, um, which is always scary when you have a character that they don't like. But that's part of I think it's OK, because that's that's part of the transformation that he's going to go through. Right. And part of the reason you you start to like him as time goes on is there's a couple of reasons, a couple of the decisions he makes, a lot of ones he makes wrong. But you see that mother-son relationship and, and how it's kind of broken. And you start to feel for him and say, this is why he's gravitating to this group of people. Um, he's gravitating there because there's no structure at home. Any, stru any structure he does have is adversarial and kind of uh, random in a sense so that he can't grasp you know, what to do or how to be belong in his own household. So that's why he finds he finds a friendship with an older teen next door is, is really how, how, you know, that's how he actually belongs to this friend group he's not even necessarily and that's why it's called third world he's not the he's like the best friend of the popular guy and that popular guy's older so he has a lot of other friends which is why brady's the the third wheel if you will oh so that's the significance of the title is the that he is the third wheel that he feels he's the third wheel in every every aspect of his life so he's kind of like the third wheel at home even though he's got he's got a sister so there's four people but he's the third wheel because he's the new insert into the group there was a family of three now he's the extra part uh then when he has a his best friend um is mick uh, that lives next door mick's older he's like 16 so as a result mick always has another friend that he kind of considers the best friend even though he's best friends with with brady as well so he's the third wheel in that relationship and then also in the book relatively early on and like in the second chapter we introduce a love interest and he's 14 and she and he's tall for his age and, and everything and she's 18 so that kind of creates a conflict because it, it's not achievable to be going out necessarily with an 18 year old girl even though there's a chemistry between them and so he's like the third wheel in that circumstance too you mentioned that that particular relationship ha has very many tender moments even though the book itself tends to be a more of a thriller yeah and it does so so it is a coming of age story for sure. And I, I like to say that it's literary fiction. Some of the reviewers have really gravitated to calling it a coming of age thriller. So I've gone with that a little bit, but at the same time, then we kind of start to miss some of those tender moments, like I said. So 
the the love interest is one of those relationships, even though there's a, a give and take because he lies about his age on the front end. There, you know, there's there's those moments like, in, especially because it's set in the 1980s, where uh, he goes over to the girl's house on the help washer car, uh, and they get into you know a typical car washing water fight with the hose. So that is kind of a real special special moment because they know that there's something magical about that, and she doesn't know his age at the time, but she's starting to pick up that maybe he's not telling the truth. But it's hard for her to even gauge that, right? Because all his friend groups are like, his friends are like 16 to 18. That's how they ended up meeting at this particular party. And, and since he's tall, she just assumed that he's he's like that. He, she figured he was probably 16 or 17. But there's a, a much bigger age difference there. Uh, and then there's other times they do go to the movies together. And there, so things like that do happen in the book where you kind of say, oh, okay. And then the relationship between him and his friend Nick also kind of touches on those on those points when they have conversations. I know you mentioned in some of the notes you sent me that this portrays the damaging effects of psychological abuse. Do you mind sharing how this is yeah. reflected in the third wheel? Sure. And that's that's with the especially with the mother-son relationship. This is kind of interesting too. It's like when when I first wrote um and, th and this is like th I'll take one this is also something I share with my life so it'll be kind of a kind of interesting antidote for it. So just one of the things that happens in Third Wheel, uh, a punishment that Brady Wilkes receives is that he's put on room restriction for a month and the mother takes everything out of his room. So it's almost like solitary confinement. You know, I had it written in there initially, uh, more like it happened in real life, which was, it was pretty much on the spot like that, is that I was put on room restriction for a month with nothing in my room. So I just put that in the story like that. And one of the Bader's readers wrote back and said, hey, you lost me because there's no way that this could be true. And I was like, Oh, but it is true. <laughs> but, and she said, well, that's you know, one of those cases where reality is stranger than fiction. Uh, so she actually asked me to tone it down and I did. So I made the, the room restriction a little bit more gradual in that she would take, you know, she would take things out of his room as he said, oh, well, I'm just reading books now. So he, she'd take that out of the room and then, oh, I'm just going to do art now. And they she'd take that out of the room. So that's one of the, the cases that it was. So uh, Brady goes through a lot of psychological abuse, so he did, go, you know, he has like the solitary confinement. Instead of being praised for his artwork, which was one of the few things he had that gave him a strong sense of um, self, uh, she actually made drawings to show that he wasn't all that, even though he was, you know, we're talking between the ages of 12 and 14, having somebody who's an adult show you up on art is, you know, pretty easy, especially if they if they had any artistic talent. She goes out of his way to needle him, or we mentioned in there how Brady has on occasion, uh, she gives him the silent treatment, like classic silent treatment for months at a time, and then draws it out in public to say, you know, oh, uh, George, you know, will you mind telling Brady this? Or will you mind telling him that? Because I'm not going to do it. And then one of the other really pivotal scenes in the book is where um, she actually takes him. He doesn't know it. They, he thinks that they're going to go on a family vacation uh, up to Mount Charleston as for, for like a day trip is the way it's presented. But she actually takes him to the front of a juvenile delinquent boys camp and then threatens that next time they take him up the mountain he's going to be left there so these are the kind of psychological abuse things that brady kind of goes through and then you're you start to feel like wow this kid's really going through a lot and then you start to forgive him on some of the other you know maybe wrong choices that he's making along the way i think that that's one thing i love about fiction is that we can tackle a lot of those things and do it in a way yeah. that people are willing to accept. Whereas sometimes, you know, especially people who have had more sheltered lives, they're not going to believe that somebody would have like a full room restriction sort of thing. Yeah. And so that's what I love about fiction. Yeah. A room restriction they get, but, you know, so the solitary confinement aspects, you know, quite a lot for a, 
you know, 12 year old, 13 yeah. year old, you know. Definitely psychological abuse there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so were you self-published or were, did you do traditional publishing? I, you know, it's kind of like a hybrid situation for me in that I take it. I do take advantage of both sides of the fence as an indie author. Um, I, I ride that side a little bit. And I also ride the traditional publishing side, depending on who I'm talking to. I mean, I'm very honest with what it is. Uh, but at the same time, it's a little bit more of a hybrid approach in that I own the publishing company. Uh, and that's kind of what it is. So I own a company here in Las Vegas, and it's called um, Copyright Inc. And that became my publisher because I've done publishing before um, in terms of like magazines and trade publications. So it was just a natural transition for me to go ahead and do that. And then with my first project, I knew it was going to be successful. And it's been actually like amazingly successful. I knew many publishers, it would be hard to sell it to publishers, but I knew I could sell it to readers. So that's why I decided to do it, you know, on my own. Uh, the first time with 50 states and what i learned from 50 states was that hey it's not that scary to go ahead and, and publish on your own in fact there's a lot of advantages to it because authors today are actually asked to do so much of their own marketing anyway and that's what copywriting is is a marketing advertising firm uh, you have to make some adjustments to to market authors i've learned but um, once you get that pattern and you know what to do it starts to be a lot easier so originally i just did it because i didn't think i didn't want to wait for publishers to come and tell me it's okay and they're going to go with it. Uh, and then I thought, well, I, I think I'm going to get more traction on my own. And I did like um, 50 states has sold uh, double what any, actually better than double than any small publisher would have been able to do with a short story collection. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Actually, I'm getting up to 3000 books, which is about what most short story collections, even for famous author, except Stephen King, uh, will we'll get. <laughs> yeah, Stephen King's the exception. But most of the short story authors will end up getting about 3,000 books sold uh, for the life of the book. And I'm, I'm already about to eclipse that. So I'm, I'm fine with that. What were some of the most challenging parts of um, publishing your own book? Honestly, I think quality control is like my biggest concern right now, uh, because you only have certain avenues and then you have to make decisions based upon that. So I think there's so many self-published authors out there right now. And a lot of, there's, um, I think it's like 1.5 million books are published by self-published authors every year, which is just adding to about 800,000 that traditional publishers are putting out. That's a lot of books. The, the biggest challenge, I, I think, I mean, getting into bookstores takes a lot of finesse and you really have to work the indies and get to know them. And I've made a lot of good friendships along the way as a result of that. But if you want to be successful, you have to be ready to market like a lot. Uh, but but beyond the marketing, I, I still think the quality control is the biggest issue. I, so I end up using multiple platforms in order to sort of overcome this. Uh, so like Barnes & Noble, I'm going with their trade paperback as opposed to. So basically the way, it, let me backtrack. Um, so with Ingram Spark uh, is pretty much one of the things that a lot of indie publishers are going to use. And then they're going to do it because it, that's probably the only option for uh, having the dust cover and the hard copy book with the dust cover. So there's that aspect and then you do the trade paperback with them and that will cover pretty much most outlets and everybody else but then when you go to amazon you realize that the amazon quality for trade paperbacks better so you want to go and you want to do a trade paperback with them that'll sort of trump the ingram spark copy and i've learned that the same thing happens with barnes and noble it's better to have a barnes and noble trade pub than it is to let ingram spark fill that that void and I like Ingram Sparks to a degree, but lately I think their quality control has been a little tough. Like I just received a box of books and 
the next purchase I made was a paper cutter because I'm going to have to be trimming some of the um, some oh, of the dust jackets. Yeah, that was not very. <laughs> yeah, and then it's concerning because then you wonder what other people are receiving because if they're not getting it right. the way it's supposed to be presented, then you have that quality control issue, and that goes through me because I work in advertising and marketing, and I'm not used to that. Normally, you know, I'm I'm one of the guys that goes down to do, or, or I have a designer do it, go down and we do press checks and make sure everything's right. But in the self-publishing world, unless you go to a, a local printer, you're not going to be able to do that. And then, of course, the downside with going to a local printer to have all your books done is then you don't have the right distribution channels like Ingram Sparks has, which is why you want to use them. So that it's kind of like those kind of catch-22s, you know. And so quality control, I think, is the biggest thing. Now, I don't have those issues with the trade paperbacks that are, like, consistently good from everybody. So I'm happy about that. I would do a hardcover with a dust jacket for Amazon, but they don't offer that. So they only do the laminate. And that looks really great for 50 States, the short story collection. But I, I always feel like it's going to seem a little wonky if I do a laminate on a, on a regular novel, or maybe not. I don't know. I, maybe I'll change my mind. I get that. So how did you get into Barnes & Noble? I'm sure a lot of our listeners would like to know that. <laughs> well, Barnes & Noble actually has a, a Barnes & Noble uh, press track now, so you can use theirs. I do it for that just to get on Nook. So with 50 States, I did that for Nook. I went ahead and learned how to do that. And then they offer a trade paperback and hardcover version. They use the same printer um, that Ingram Sparks uses, but I think maybe that printer is has a little bit more quality control. You know, I don't know. I have uh, on the oversight. I have not tried their hardcover because I've heard that they, they have quality control issues on the hardcover. I think everybody does. I think there's just too much demand to really get those dust jackets right or something. So they're just trying to crank them out as quickly as they can. Uh, and they just probably need to slow down, especially with the bigger orders, you'd think they'd get that right. So that's how you do that. Now, in terms of getting into Barnes & Noble stores, that's a little that's a little different. You have to pretty much go store by store and they'll order them either from Barnes & Noble Press if you've gone that route, like I am now. I, I'm hoping that's a bigger incentive or they will order them from Ingram Spark. They don't like ordering them from Ingram Spark. And one of the things that you'd have to do if you were an author going through Ingram Spark is you, you you do have to take a lot of risk. So your royalty percentage is really going to be eaten on both sides of the fence in terms of the production. So you lose a good chunk of it on the production side with Ingram Spark, and then they charge you an additional fee every time that the book goes out by, by with the orders uh, on top of the what you'd expect them to do. And then you're giving up at least 55% to realtor, uh, to the real resale market. So you're left with that, you know, maybe $2 per book window uh, where you can get a lot more if you go with Barnes Barnes and Noble and a lot more if you go with Amazon than that. Uh, so definitely authors need to look at the that price point. And, I, I, and sometimes, you know, people will say, well, why is your book $16.99? And it's because, well, you know, if I made it any less than the author, you know, it's, I might as well just give it to you, right? You know, uh, which is okay in some cases, but you don't want to do that in every case or you don't want to charge yourself because you have to pay for marketing and everything else, right? So those are kind of the kind of the way to do that. So Barnes & Noble then, once you have the book, um, a place that they can get it and you have your ISBN number, uh, you just tell the local bookstores that are willing to stock your book or if you're visiting a particular area. Uh, and I do the same thing with indies. Um, you just tell them the ISBN numbers where they can get the book and either they'll go to Ingram Spark or in this case, now since I have a trade paperback on Barnes & Noble, they'll probably just get it from Barnes & Noble. And I think that's probably the best, you know, the best way to do it. I think they'll be more enticed to, to order it from their own catalog. Uh, but we'll find out. I haven't done that yet. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, good luck I've been too that. busy actually to, to work the, the local bookstores, which is unusual, you know, to see about getting, and we don't have many in Las Vegas, unfortunately, but I, so I haven't really worked the local bookstores yet. Um, I'm looking at my first signing will probably be the Las Vegas book festival. 
uh, where I'll have a booth that's already that's already a done deal, and then so a lot of people are going to go there, you know, for for my first book signing. You know, I'm so glad that you had so much knowledge on the the publishing aspect because that's something that I have been very yeah. curious about. So thank you so much. What is one piece of advice you would give to somebody who is not yet published? Not necessarily how to publish or anything like that, but just overall. I learned two things in order to get my project done, right? So there were there were two lessons I learned. And one was from my friend, um, Stephen Butcher, who is a designer. And he started a project called The Daily Monster. And so his Daily Monster was he do a, this little ink sketch of a monster every day. And then he did 100 of them every day, you know, whether he was sick or whether he was tired or whether he was tired of monsters, whatever the case was. And he just said that you have to, you know, put some work in every single day on your project. So that was one thing. And then the second thing was I had another friend named Jeff Livingston, who's done a lot of amazing things. He's published his own books before. He's had publishers as well. Uh, and then he became out of the blue a photographer because he wanted to do that. But he's he's actually um, a marketer getting into AI. He's always likes to be on the cutting edge. And I asked him one day, I'm like, how do you do all these things? And he said, well, you got to put your project first. And I was like, oh, that's what I'm doing wrong. I never put my project first. I always put my writing on the back burner. And I think that's the biggest thing that you have to learn. And I'll, I'll kind of weave this all together for you. But you have to learn to put your project first and you have to treat it like a job. And if you don't give it the amount of time that you would for any other job, you are never going to get your project done. Um, and that's kind of how you do that. So I, I don't think my process would work for everybody, but I do have a process. But part of the first step is you have to put it first and then you have to work on it almost like every day. And the way I ended up doing 50 states on the front end, which is how I sort of leapt into this, which is my process, was I decided to do uh, one one short story a week for 50 weeks. That's what the project was initially. It ended up being 50 states because each story takes place in a different state. But that kind of organically happened. That was not the original intent. It was just to do one short story because I couldn't do a short story a day like The Daily Monster. I did a short story a week for 50 weeks. And I would actually share that on Facebook when Facebook would allow me to share it, uh, they, they don't really like short stories so much uh, to be shared on Facebook, just so you know. Uh, you, that's a good way to get kicked off <laughs> or flagged because the, of the content of the short stories, even if it's fiction, they, they the, the algorithm and sometimes the people don't seem to recognize the difference. So you have to push back and then sometimes they push back a little harder and then, you know, then you're kicked off. So you don't want to do that. Uh, but when I could do that, I, I ended up growing a, a, like a little fan base of like 1400 people who would show up every week to, to read my short story. And that was kind of like the process that went into it. And uh, so I'd start on Monday. So Monday I would block, like I don't do any client work because I have a lot of client work to do too. So I don't do any client work on Monday. I just work on when I'm in a project, I just, that's what I do is I write as much of the short story as I can on Monday. And then I'll tinker with it for the rest of the week until it's finalized on Sunday, I'm done and I'm gone. And then I use that same process for third wheel, except it was a chapter a week. So I do... Third wheel took 24 weeks, start to finish. Once I once I was in the project, um, every week I'd start a chapter. By the end of the week, I'd be done with it. And after 24 weeks, I had a draft that I was very happy with. Of course, wow! It took a lot longer than 24 weeks to finalize the book because it probably took another eight months or so to like go back and clean things up and kind of tweak some things and get some feedback and editors and beta readers and. You know, you can never have enough beta readers and editors, I'll tell you that. But in terms of um, authors, uh, if you're struggling to get your project going, you have to find a block of time that works for you. I've heard of writers that do that, you know, I don't, I couldn't, I don't know if I would do it this way, but 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, every day, I've, you know, you hear those stories. 
or some people are like Sunday writers or just find whatever it is and then set a deadline to hold yourself accountable to get a certain amount of work done. When you're talking, it was reminding me of a quote I heard. I'll probably um, butcher it, but people often overestimate how much they can get done in a day, but underestimate how much they can get done in a year. And I think working on it every day is very important. And I don't know if you've ever read the book Slight Edge. I love self-help type books, but the Slight Edge is also very similar to that in that they say if you form a pattern, you're going to exponentially get better. Like the question that they ask at the very beginning is, would you rather get a penny on the first of the month and have it doubled every single day till the end of the month or $1 million on the first of the month? And after 30 days, you end up having like five million dollars so it'd actually be better to do the and that's kind of the concept but that's what it kind of reminds me when you're talking about that i I love yeah i love your concept it kind of bridges over to something else that i do so i also coach high school softball it's one of my uh, because i can't be busy enough right so i i do some uh coaching as well and i always tell them you know we're only working toward especially right now way ahead of the season we're only working to be one percent better this week well, if you could be 1% better a day or 1% better a week, you're going to get to the goals that you want to achieve when it really counts. And I think the same thing happens with writing. And and leading up to fiction, just to kind of go into that, and well, I, one of the advantages I, th- I think I have over other authors was, you know, I do have, you know, 30 plus years of writing experience behind me before I even started my projects. So I didn't have to go through that learning process as well. I mean, there's so many things that you need to learn um, to be an effective writer. And I, th- I really needed that 30 years of growth as a writer to to kind of end up where I am now, where I could write fiction that actually people want to read and, and, and sells. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate you being on today. I really appreciate all the knowledge that you were able to share too and wisdom. Anyway, again, thank you very much. Thank you, Agnes. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Authors Alcove. We will be back next week on Wednesday where we will have a writer share yet another piece of work. Also, every other Tuesday, we do learn from experts such as editors, marketing execs, book cover artists, illustrators, and more. If you are interested in being a guest on our show, feel free to go to authorsalcove.com, go to the podcast tab, and then click on Be a Guest. If you're looking for a healed heart, hop on over to our sister podcast, Strength, Love, and Healing with Authors Alcove. You can find that on Spotify and the Apple Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. Have a great day.